Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Mitesh Kunvarji. Mitesh is the Managing Director of Temple Yule Nursing Home in Kent. Mitesh, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. I'm really excited and happy to be taking part in this. I'm, it's a real pleasure for myself, Mitesham, having you on the air as well. And uh, we'll be handing over, of course, to your colleague, registered manager of Temple Yule Nursing Home, Gillian Burnham, a little later on as well. But if we dive straight into the discussion first and foremost, uh, Mitesh, um, this discussion is about leadership and really ascertaining your views on that. So if we take that word leader in isolation and just look at that first and foremost, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? I think I think I think the word leader to me means someone who helps motivate others and the team around you. I think it means looking after your staff and the morale of your staff um, and trying to bring out the best in those people. I think being a leader is not necessarily um, about being um, feared or, or anything along those lines. It's more about encouraging um, and promoting the skill sets um, of other people and helping them fulfill their goals, their ambitions. And in doing so, you're promoting your organization, aren't you? Um, mm. so, so that's what being a leader really means to me, I think. It's not about my own um, self-development necessarily or my own um, interests. It's about, well, how can I help develop the interests of my staff and the people and the management team and the people running my business and working in my business um, to make them feel fulfilled. And in doing so, that in itself is going to help create a fulfilled and successful business in, in my view. And I think that's what being a good leader means in my mind anyway. And I would say that people management comes into leadership quite a great deal, even though leadership and management, we could say, are fundamentally different things. So if we think about how you lead from a people management point of view, Mitesh, how would you describe that sort of style of leadership? I, I think I think I think my style of leadership is an inclusive style. It's a let's work together, a teamwork kind of um, ethos, rather than um, uh, you know just just lead from the top and, and make decisions without involving and consulting everyone else. Um, I think it's particularly true in a in a sort of nursing home environment whereby uh, I may be the provider, the owner, the managing director, but I'm not the one on the floor in the home day in day out running the home so therefore i think it's vitally important that you involve your manager your management team your deputy um and your staff in some of the key decisions for the home whether it be um how it's run operationally the policies uh, structurally if you want to make changes to how um your communal room looks or 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 different aspects of the home i think it's vitally important that you do involve these your key stakeholders your staff um in these kind of decisions because it, it it, it, it builds that kind of teamwork in ethos and, and, and helps everyone work towards and strive towards the same end goal. Um, so so, so my, my approach is very much a inclusive approach, if you will, to get everyone's viewpoint and then ultimately make it to the decision yourself. But you take everyone's views on board, I think, to try and get to the because they may think of things that you don't. So therefore, I think that's the best mm-hmm. way of arriving at the best, best solution or, or, or best way forward. 
And I think that sort of leadership, keeping the communication channels open and then making difficult decisions is very relevant in the here and now, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for different business leaders, leaders of organisations, governments to sort of feel their way through what's ultimately an unprecedented crisis and has had a tremendous impact on frontline industries, especially yours, the uh, the care sector. Um, How have you coped with it so far uh, do you think uh, Mitesh I'm interested to understand um, how you've adapted to uh, meet the challenges of the uh, the pandemic and also what you think the long-term effect of this is going to be on the likes of yourselves yeah sure so obviously there has been massive impacts on um, on our business on in the care industry generally and and, and on in our nursing home uh, in Kent I mean how have we dealt with it we've obviously adapted um, and changed the way the ways in which our staff um, come in and out of the home um, to try and prevent cross-infection. Um, so, for example, um, staff uniforms stay on site. They're washed on site. Staff change as soon as they come in. There's a whole a range, range of PPE right at the front door before they come into the home uh, to, to minimise that cross-infection. Um, we've had a decontamination service um, conducted at the home, so the whole home has been decontaminate, decontaminated um, using a fogging technique, um, which we've had a couple of times and we're going to be doing once again in the next week or so. Um We've obviously put um, the home uh, into, into lockdown to try and protect our residents um, and have used um, technology more to help our residents stay in touch with their families, whether that be uh, Skype, FaceTime, uh, and this kind of thing. We've just recently, we're recently trying to set up, a, create a kind of pod or bubble outside one of the gardens uh, to enable uh, families one at a time to come in and visit their the residents. So we can have the resident and the carer, for example, on one side of the bubble or pod and, and the family member on the other side so they can actually meet up with their family members again. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we're trying to think about different things to now, to now move the service forward almost. It's almost been a, a sort of emergency or crisis mode in the last few months, just trying to um, keep the virus at bay, uh, keep running, um, look after our staff and residents as much as possible as different people, you know, develop the virus, um, think about how to keep the home as clean as possible and, and, and keeping up supplies of PPE. But now, like I say, I think it's doing all of that, but thinking forward about how do we now adapt our service for the future? And, and you know, as you mm. say, things are going to change going forward. I think, you know, the use of PPE, to the level it's now being used, is going to become more normalised going forward. I think there's going to have to be provision made for that in funding arrangements for care homes to enable homes to be able to afford the level of PPE I think we're going to need. Um there can be changes in the way, you know, things like waste is dealt with in terms of, um, yeah, the various waste products that are produced from a care home. Um, I just think there'll be different manners in which that's dealt with based on the increased risk from infectious viruses such as um, COVID-19. Um, yeah, and from a, you know, and I just think the way people consider whether family members need to go into care homes, that's going to be impacted in the short term but I think in the long term, particularly of homes such as mine, where you provide nursing care, um, where you know people are coming in really because they require uh, specialist type nursing care, I still think that demand is going to continue um, medium to long term because where else are they going to get that kind of that kind of care and support? So uh, short term, there will obviously be be an impact, but I think over the longer term, I think it, it will normalise, particularly in, in more sort of specialised care markets. 
And in terms of your plans, the plans for Temple uh, Yule Nursing Home over the course of the year, uh, the next sort of twelve months as we move through the uh, the pandemic. Uh, yeah. How do we? How do you really um, look to um, sort of progress in that sense? And what do you really hope to achieve as we adapt to what ultimately is going to be this new normal? Ah, uh, well, obviously, like I say, the development of this uh, outdoor sort of area where we can enable more more visiting for our residents. Um, a few structural changes probably within the home, again, to enable more interaction, um, probably installation of more hand washing facilities within the home. Um, I do have a uh, planning permission to build an extension, which I referenced in the article, which we were going to be building, which should have started this year, but it's obviously all delayed now mm. as a result of all of this. Hopefully, we can we can start that building work next year because I know the demand is in the area. Um and yeah, I, 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 my plans for the next twelve months really are to to stabilise the service, as it were, and and really, you know, um, um, get these things in place to help deal with with COVID nineteen or other, you know, you know, infectious diseases that may that we may come across next year. All all of it is good practice, I think, for other types of of, you know, of viruses that we may come across in the future, whether it be this one or another one. Um, and yeah, just just try and, and and get the occupants, you know, get our our numbers back to what they should be. Try and make some changes to the building to be fit for the future, and 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 work on that extension next year if possible. So they're my kind of plans personally for the home um, over the next twelve months. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll be able to achieve it and and, and be successful in in the new sort of environment. Let's certainly hope so uh, for sure, Mitesh. And, you know, given how informative it's been to discuss some of these plans with you today, I think it would be fantastic to perhaps catch up and have you back on at some point in the next year just to see how those hopes are being borne out and maybe also discuss exactly what the new normal is shaping up to be like within the home as well. Yeah, no, look, that would be fantastic because obviously it's all, you know, it's all speculative in many ways at the moment, isn't it? It's just based on, on what you read and, and, and your own experiences. But absolutely, it'd be lovely to catch up in 12 months and see how things actually are, yeah. I'd really relish that opportunity, uh, Mitesh. Um, Thank you ever so much for joining us and do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with all still going on as well. Thank you very much, you too. That was Mitesh Kunvarji, Managing Director of Temple Yule Nursing Home in Kent. I now have the pleasure of being joined on the programme by Gillian Burnham, the Registered Manager of Temple Yule Nursing Home and Mitesh's colleague. Hello, Gillian. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Hello. Pleased to be with you. It's a real pleasure having you join us on the air as well, Gillian. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really address the topic of leadership and bring that into focus. So one thing that I wanted to ask you, which I also asked Mitesh earlier on, is what does that word leader actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Um, I think in in the type of um, environment I'm in, it means um, standing up and, and be um, accountable. Um, to making decisions, to be able to make decisions, um, to be a good communicator, um, to help people to reach their fullest potential, um, whether they are uh, a staff member or a resident. Um, so, yes, I think that's sort of kind of um, what leadership means to me is, 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 you know, first and foremost, being able to stand up and be counted um, and make the tough decisions um, and support other people um, to make their own decisions. 
Mm. I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, uh, Gillian. And um, I think um, that people management is one of those important elements that comes into leadership as well. And considering that you are working with people day to day within Temple Yule, I was interested to understand how you would describe your own sort of leadership style in that sense. Um, I'm quite a hands-on leader, so I would never ask anybody to do anything that I wasn't prepared to do myself or to demonstrate um, how it would need to be done. Um, I consider myself to be quite a patient person because I think everybody has their own um, ideas and opinions and they're all worthwhile. Um, So it's it's good to be a good listener. Um, And I think... Um, you need to be, um, as I said before, supportive mm. to allow people to have their opinion and um, and style. Um, and sometimes that means agreeing to disagree, um, but still being strong enough to make the final decisions when necessary. And I think... That's something that's incredibly relevant um, in the here and now, isn't it? Making very difficult decisions with the input of others, because one of the biggest challenges of our time is um, something that we're going through at the moment, of course, COVID-19. And it's posed some incredible challenges for the care sector and various other industries. Um, Mitesh has already told us a little bit about that from a financial point of view, Gillian. But I'm interested to ascertain from your perspective as to how it's been on the ground looking after staff and residents during this period. Um, I think from a staff perspective, it's been about um, reassuring and being um, an open door for listening to their fears because obviously, you know, they've had fears and worries. It's ensuring that we've trained staff and reiterated training about the correct um, ways of doing things and reassuring them that, um, you know, the measures that we have in place, talking them through those steps every time we put um, measures in place and make sure they've got the training to understand about um, wearing the correct PPE and how to conduct themselves when entering the building and leaving the building. Um, As far as um, managing residence care, it's been quite tough because um, we are not running a social programme like we would normally. Um, So it's put um, more pressure on the care staff and the management team to ensure that we um, spend as much time as we can interacting um, with residents. But of course, when you're wearing PPE, that um, presents its own problems. When people with um, hearing disabilities um, cannot see your lips moving or whether you're smiling or grimacing, that leads to different challenges. And we've had to guide people through how um, to overcome those and, and using um, voice and mm. different tones of voice to get that, that message across. Um, we have spent time every morning um, meeting with staff, talking to staff. Um, we've had a lot more informal um, group style meetings to make sure that everybody um, is fully engaged in, in what is going on and, and reassuring because the news keeps changing all the time and, um, you know, directives keep changing. So um, we've done our very best to keep everybody as well informed as, you know, as possible. Mm. Um, And that includes 
residents and residents' families and friends because that's been quite difficult with not having been able to have um, visitors into the home. Mm. Um, so, you know, not not only have we had to be um, sociable um, people to the residents and provide that social interaction, but we've also had to pro- provide more emotional support for those ones that are, um, are, are you know, really missing their relatives and loved ones. Mm. And I can imagine it's been sort of quite a challenge providing the reassurance that's been necessary at times, especially when there's been so much uncertainty and there may have been some real pressure on you and a lot of difficult discussions that you might have had to have there. Um, Of course, it's testament to your flexibility and your adaptability that you've been able to sort of cater to changing guidelines, changing circumstances during this time as well. Um, What I was interested to understand there, Gillian, is um, given the debate around the clarity of government guidance as to whether you have felt comfortable throughout the pandemic thus far in knowing exactly what's been expected of you and you are continuing to understand that going through into the next stages of the year the pandemic just because of all the debate that there's been around that issue i think things change so quickly and there hasn't the guidance has not been as clear as it could have been um and by the time you've received one piece of legislation or one piece of directorship, you know, via email or however it's come to you, it's changed already. Um, you know, it, it's been that quick, um, the changes that are, are coming through. And I, I honestly think that, you know, if I read absolutely every piece of directive that came through or legislation that came through, I wouldn't have moved from my computer screen um, at all during this time and probably still would never have kept up with it because I wouldn't have been around to implement it. (laughs) Um, So it's been very changeable. Um, And to, you know, and I don't think it's been um, clear enough at times about just what is happening or you know, within a few days, it's it's been like, well, this is happening, and it's ha- it's or it's happened now. This is what you should be doing, mm. um, and and the expectation is that you're doing it from that moment, and then you know it it can be as short as a few hours later there is another change. Um, so from that perspective, it's been quite um, a challenge. Um, you know, and I, I understand that some things have to change, and and, and there has to be. On the, you know, at the moment, change. But there's, from my experience, there's been a few too many. And considering, to, to up with. Mm, considering that, of course, um, those working at the uh, the home have had to essentially adapt and be flexible under very difficult working circumstances during this time. Um, have you been inspired by what you've seen from them, Gillian? And I ask that question because we've heard some incredible stories from the front line during this time of people who've really gone above and beyond. And I can imagine that you sort of feel very much the same way yourself there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think um, my own staff team here have been incredible. Um, and we we kind of have, we've got sort of a a, a a home name sort of saying well it's a bit like you know what you can imagine war mentality be everybody knuckles down and no you know nobody complains or has 
anything to um, bring to our attention in a negative style. Everybody has been just so incredible, really. And if we think about now what the next 12 months holds as we sort of adapt to this new normal that everybody's talking about, what do you envision for Temple Yule Nursing Home in the uh, the year ahead from the ground? Um, I think there still is, is lots more changes to come. I think, you know, we have a, a, a big job ahead of us to protect um, our staff and our residents to ensure that their, you know, health, um, is protected. So as we start to um, welcome back um, visitors into the home, I think the way that we welcome them back in, you know, we'll have to, we will be training staff and we will be making adaptions, adaptations to the home to accommodate that. And I think that will go on for many, many, many months. You know, that the, the, the level of protection that we are putting in place will remain for the next at least 12 months I can't you know there would be there are some things that I don't think will go back to the way they were before um I think we'll be, we will be much more aware of people's health status when they enter the building because they are coming into a place where residents are already very vulnerable mm. um and I think that's one of the you know the main things that um, will come out of this that we as a as an organisation will be more aware of, of you know saying to people please don't visit um, if you have you know a virus or or a transmittable uh, or anything you think that could be transmittable because um, we've become so much more aware how things um travel around so fast and and can have devastating consequences mm. not just with mm. you know coronavirus mm. it's going to be very changing times isn't it for uh, the care industry going forward as we adjust to the uh, the new normal and of course it's good speculating um, as to uh, what the new normal might bring but it's a different matter entirely sort of seeing exactly what happens then analyzing those changes and so i think it would be fantastic Gillian, given how informative it's been to discuss this with you today to actually even have you back on the program in a few months time just to discuss what has changed in that period at temple yule and uh, maybe we can discuss how things are getting on behind the scenes um, as well at that point yes certainly that would be very good thank you I think it would be incredibly enlightening, not just for myself, but also from a listener's perspective. And um, I'm sure Mitesha felt exactly uh, the same way when I uh, suggested that to uh, him as well. Um, Gillian, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure listening to you uh, today, um, airing some of these um, issues, because it is incredibly important um, that people do get to hear this. And most importantly, until we do touch base again in the future, please do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods yet, as I'm sure you very well know. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Gillian Burnham speaking, the registered manager of Temple Yule Nursing Home. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of the 
then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a 
service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and um, 
and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned. 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.